Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Bar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Yoel? Well, you know, I'm I'm distraught uh, for two reasons. Uh, you know, war in Europe, first of all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then also, I feel like somehow obliged to have something insightful or smart to say about it, you know, from like a psychological perspective. And I just don't. It just sucks and I'm bummed about it. And that's all I know. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, w- I wondered if you would ask me about this because it feels like a glaring omission to not ask about it. But I also don't feel like I have a lot of psychological insight into um, into what's happening. Other than we pro- probably we shouldn't um, psychologically analyze Putin. That's my only contribution. You know what? I, c- I can get behind that. Um, yeah, right. So it, it feels weird because we're going to do our just normal content of talking about psychology stuff and random gossip. And it's like, well, this like very bad thing is happening um, in the backyards of, you know, people that I know or perhaps to them. And we're mm-hmm. like, also have nothing useful to say about it. I will say that I feel like I feel like that's the right move, and I feel like more people than should be are weighing in. Um, so I will say I knew very little about Ukraine and Russia's history until very recently. So I'm certainly like not somebody who should be talking about it on a podcast. Um, but that might be just my way of uh, telling myself that it's okay to not do the work to become informed and then use the podcast as a chance to talk about something important. You know, I I trust your judgment here. I I think you're right. I don't think anybody wants the, you know, Wikipedia expert Alexa telling us what's going on in Ukraine. (laughs) I read three articles. Okay. I read articles that were like everything you need to know about Ukraine. So I should be up to date. Well, literally everything you need to know in your life. Um, Yeah, I didn't even get that far. I mean, I'm in the same boat. I knew very little about this stuff until about two weeks ago. And now I've been reading stuff, but I still feel like I really like have very little grasp of the background facts here. And so I'm totally unqualified to really have any sort of opinion. Yep. Great. Let's leave it there. Hey, I heard you were at SBSB in person. How was that? Uh, it was great. Um, so it was actually the perfect in-person conference to have in San Francisco uh, because a lot of content was hybrid. Um, so basically a lot of sessions were changed to be online sessions, um, which meant that they were on Zoom and then also many of them were recorded. Um So that made it very easy to be like, well, surely I'm not going to sit in a hotel room and watch a Zoom session, which I think we talked about. Um, So instead, I spent a lot of time doing fun stuff in San Francisco. Um, I saw my friend from grad school, Jenny, um, and um, Megan came with me. So it was like a really uh, great chance to hang out in San Francisco. Um, I'm like catch up with people that I haven't seen in a long time. Um, So it was kind of ideal. So you're saying what made this conference great is you didn't do any of the conference things. (laughs) It does sound like I'm saying that, doesn't it? (laughs) It might be interpreted in that fashion, yes. If it was like in Tampa, maybe I would have been more in favor of a really excellent content and talks or something like that. But San Francisco is a pretty fun place to hang out. I just can't believe you would take that position on Tampa, the Pirate Festival. (laughs) (laughs) My um, opinion of cities is pretty correlated with how early in my graduate career I went to a conference at that city. Um, so I feel like I, I really didn't enjoy conferences at the beginning, probably because I didn't have any friends. And so uh, Tampa was 
I think the first ever SPSB that I went to and it sucked. Um, but Tampa might not suck. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, I don't want, just as I know nearly nothing about Ukraine, I know very little about Tampa. <laughs> Uh, I do know that it was a bad location, well, at that time for a conference because they have this pirate festival thing, which is just like a ton of drunken Floridians show up there and then they start firing cannons. So like you're trying to give a talk and cannons are going off in the background. It just was not well thought through, in my opinion. Yeah, I always I love the like weird coincident conferences like so the the pirate festival is is one that's memorable for me and then there was also like an spsp that happened at the same time as like a beef festival so there were just like a festival (laughs) like a bunch of people in cowboy hats like i guess like ranchers or something yeah wow that i don't remember that one and i'm a little sad that maybe i missed it do you remember the one there where there was also some sort of like anime or like a a comic-con kind of thing right yeah i i can't remember if this was spsb or something else but i have like a vague memory of there being being like a furry conference but maybe i just took comic-con and like inflated it in my mind (laughs) no i just wanted a good story i wish that were true well (laughs) i i do know there was the comic-con one where there were people in costumes and stuff right so there were people dressed up as like anime characters and Mm -hmm. carrying giant swords and things like that Maybe I misinterpreted them. As there as might have furry. been a furry or two in there, you know, blending in, hanging out as they do. <laughs> okay. Anyway, what are we drinking? Um, I am drinking something called Terra Formosa, which is an IPA um, made by Trim Tab Brewing in Alabama. Nice. You've had stuff from that brewery before, huh? I have, yeah. Um, they get me with their very pretty cans wow that is nice so i'll just describe for the listeners i'm seeing some flowers i'm seeing some pink and kind of like bluish and green and then there's like a triangle and a circle kind of thing there on Uh the front i think that um this may be millennial pink have you heard of this color i have no idea what you're talking about i think that it's a color that millennials have been conditioned to like and i think i'm a pretty good example of that um, so like if product labels and stuff have that color in them, I want to buy them. Because, what, where does this come from? Uh, where does this come from? I don't know. I've just heard that it's like, a, an unusually like popular color, um, which seems to be like the consequence of marketing targeted at millennials. Huh. There must be some like shared early exposure that you guys all had to this color of pink that gives you positive associations. I'm uh, drinking this Unibrew that I think I had the last time that we recorded. I still found some in the back of my fridge, and I remember really liking it. Um, It's sort of a departure for them because they normally do these Belgian-style ales, um, and this is a Hazy India Pale Lager. Uh, It's called an HIPL, and it has a citrusy thing here. It's got a woman in a mask. It's a cool, cool art on the can, I would say. Um, And uh, yeah, I remember enjoying it, so I'm going to drink it again. I don't know what an India pale lager is, so hopefully one of our listeners will email us. And oh, yeah, that. please. Somebody who knows about beer, write in and tell us what that is. Yeah, I thought you could just be an IPA or a lager. Yeah, I guess. It's trying to it's do like, both, just... and it's trying to be a hazy. <laughs> Man, well. maybe it's bitten off more than it can chew, you know? It's like, pick a lane, dude. Mm. How is it? Very good. It says it's brewed with... Citra 
and Nelson Sovin hops. And I definitely feel like I can taste that. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think it's this podcast. It's really developed your beer taste. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is still good. Tastes very hazy. All right. So shall we just jump into our main topic? Yes, let's. Um, so I like this topic um, because I feel like I often, as we've discussed on a previous episode, um, I often play the role of hater. And so this is a sort of like the opposite of that, right? Yeah, exactly. That's why I picked it. I was like, Alexa's been such a hater. And we need to chill her out a little bit. Let's see if we could like divert her into uh, a nicer trajectory. Listeners are just getting sick of it. They are. They're over. I get, you know, they're nice enough. They're gracious enough not to CC you on those emails, but they do on a daily basis. It's like, it's a great show, but please could Alexa be a little nice. Can you just tell Alexa to calm down? Yeah, chill the fuck out. Okay. Yeah. So um, the idea here is it's inspired uh, by a paper that I saw on Twitter a few weeks back. Uh, the paper is by someone called Nicholas Modig. And uh, what Nicholas did is surveyed a bunch of Swedish uh, economics faculty and asked them, uh, what concept from economics do you think it's most important for lay people uh, to know about? And the winner by um, quite a margin was opportunity cost, which is, I mean, it's sort of a boring, obvious idea, but it has important implications, which is just if you do one thing, you can't do another thing. You know, if you spend $5 on thing A, then you can't spend it on anything else. Right. Um, and that is, uh, you know, seemingly obvious, but like very consequential idea that these economists thought everybody should know about. And that's a co- consequential idea, I guess, because we have a tendency to think about things as like, should we do this or should we not, as opposed and then that often like causes us to conclude, okay, well, I guess we should do it because something is better than nothing or something like that, as opposed to thinking about things as like, we could do this, but if we didn't, we could do something else. And we don't sort of consider that. Yeah. So one example that's salient to me is when I decided to go to grad school, um, a big part of the decision was, well, I get to do this thing that's fun and they will pay me more than zero. And that seems mm-hmm. like the wrong standard of comparison, right? I should be, I should have been thinking, what are the other jobs that I could have for five years? What would those be like? And how would those pay me? And I didn't really think of it in that way. What am I giving up in those five years? I thought of it more as, well, compared to doing nothing, how attractive is it? But that's obviously mm-hmm. not the right comparison, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Um, which I also think comes up in interpersonal contexts too, right? Like if you imagine um, ending a relationship, you picture, or at least like I picture like my life the same way as it is now, but like just like removing a person, right? So like taking out all of the things that you associate with that person. Um, But of course, that's also not the case. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what we want listeners to take away from this is be thinking... Is my partner the best I could do? Or are they really keeping me from being with somebody even better? I realize how that sounded after I started talking. <laughs> I like that you went there because it is true. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's ex- that that is a way that um, that people think, though. And I mean, obviously, you don't want to constantly be evaluating whether you can upgrade. But at the same time, I think people think of it as like, well, this person who sucks for me or nothing, and that's generally not the actual decision that that you're making in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. 
So opportunity costs, important, um, seemingly obvious, but consequential. People should know about them, say the Swedish economists. Uh, and in case you're interested in this paper, we'll drop a link into the show notes. So anyway, um, I thought it would be a nice idea to do this for psychology. And I suggested that we each come up with our top three of uh, concepts from psychology that we believe that people should know about. Obviously, that implies that we think that, you know, there are the research is solid, even if, you know, maybe you could point to individual studies that have issues. You know, I listed things that I totally believe are real. Um, and that, you know, even if people might uh, have some kind of idea that these things exist, maybe the psychological research would, would kind of help lay people think about this more precisely or make decisions differently or something like that. So basically something that I think is true and that uh, I think is people can use to um, make better decisions. Is that how you thought about it as well, Alexa? Yeah, pretty much. So I guess I was thinking like if if I had like one class to teach um, undergrads, the most important things I could teach them from social psychology, what would, they, what would I want them to take away? I think these are the things I would try to emphasize. Right, right. The, yeah, so like they're going to forget most of it. Mm -hmm. What do you want them to remember in a year or five or, I mean, maybe 10 is pushing it, but, you know, what should they be walking out like knowing that this is something that I can use uh, to make better mm -hmm. decisions? Right. So uh, maybe we can just alternate. I can go first. Go for it. Amazing. Okay. So number one on my list is motivated reasoning. And so I think this is something where lots of lay people have some idea that this happens, although mm -hmm. they typically probably think of uh, other people doing it. Uh, but I think that uh, often lay people think of it as like, well, people just believe what they want, or, you know, they just distort the facts kind of blatantly. And uh, the way that I think about motivated reasoning there is this formulation that comes from um, my advisor in grad school, actually, Tom Gilovich, where he talks about it as can I versus must I thinking. And so the idea is you have some sort of prior thing that you want to believe to be true for whatever reason. Uh, maybe it's personally important. Maybe it's politically agreeable to you, whatever. And then you encounter some piece of evidence that has bearing on that. And you apply different standards based on whether you think that the thing has positive implications for what you want to believe or negative ones. So if it's something that has positive implications, so you want to believe that, you go into can I mode, which means that you don't think about that evidence particularly carefully. You're not motivated to poke holes in it. You don't think of alternative inf uh, interpretations. You don't think of reasons that the source who's communicating it might not be credible and so on. Versus when it's something that you don't want to believe, then you go into must-I mode in which you're just highly motivated to poke holes, to think of alternatives, um, to come up with reasons that this research, for example, shouldn't be trusted. And I think what's... Uh, insidious about this is it's it's not obvious to you that you're doing it and in fact it can feel like you're just being a careful systematic thinker and the problem is not that it's wrong to think critically about information it's that we do it in not an even-handed way right we do it kind of opportunistically when it's a, a fact that we don't want to believe and i think that can be really hard to notice in ourselves um and it can lead to people's priors 
really polarizing them, even when they encounter the exact same information. So we talk a lot about filter bubbles, people being exposed to their own information ecosystem. That is obviously true and and a problem. But even when people get exactly the same information, if they have strong priors in opposite directions, they may come to opposite conclusions. So there's a classic paper um, by Lord Ross and Lepper where they gave death penalty opponents and proponents uh, some studies that uh, these were made up, but they purported to show empirical evidence on whether the death penalty uh, deterred crime. Um, so some of these studies had one kind of weakness. Some of these studies had another kind of weakness. So I think it was uh, one kind of study compared across states, but at the same time, and there, of course, you could say, well, different states are different. Other studies compared within states, but across time, and there you could say, well, maybe other things changed over time. Um, and the studies were manipulated such that they kind of gave mixed evidence. And what people did is they discounted the studies that uh, gave evidence that didn't they didn't like, uh, that were inconsistent with their kind of prior moral belief, and they weren't so skeptical of the studies that were consistent with their prior moral belief. So you give these two groups the same set of evidence, and everybody comes out more convinced that the empirical evidence supports their prior position. Well, mm-hmm. I, I mean, maybe I'm putting it too strongly. I did, I, it, this is mean level, right? So I don't know if it's actually true that everybody did, but on average, people are even more convinced that the evidence for their position is good. Right. Um, and, and everybody, I'm sure, felt like they were not being biased. Right, they just felt like uh-huh. they were carefully examining the evidence, and that's what's so dangerous about it. You don't know that you're doing it, and it's really easy to miss it. Um, and then, kind of ironically, motivated reasoning becomes something that you get to accuse other people of without ever <laughs> noticing that you're doing it yourself. Right. Okay, I have a couple of follow-up questions. So, one question I have is: Do you have a sense of whether people are doing a better job in one of these cases than in another so when they go like into skeptic mode and they're like looking for all the flaws are they doing a fairer evaluation of the evidence than when they're letting things slide sorry letting things slide or is it like the letting things slide condition is like accurately calibrated but then when people are being really skeptical they're just sort of making up flaws yeah that's interesting i mean as as a sort of um (sighs) A person who's skeptical of lots of stuff, I want to say, oh, the ideal thing would be people are skeptical of everything. Uh-huh. But but then having been, I guess, having had firsthand experience of this happening to me when I publish a paper about some like kind of politically charged topic that kind of gets out there mm-hmm. and then seeing the skeptical responses from people uh, who are, you know, offended by it because of their ideological priors, I actually think that they're um, thinking harder about it is not all that impressive. Like they don't come up with great critiques. They come up with dumb ones. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that I, I, I might've kind of phrased it in a way that made it seem like, Oh, when you're uh, when you don't like something and you're thinking hard about it, that actually makes you more accurate. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's true. Like particularly if you're not, you know, kind of methods trained and you're trying to evaluate some like piece of empirical research, I think the critiques that you come up with, they're often just bad, just wrong. Right, right. Um, Yeah. So my other question is, like, is an implication of this um, that it doesn't really matter what science we communicate to the public? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely an implication of it is be careful about what you put out there, particularly on like kind of ideologically hot button stuff. And I've uh-huh. totally, I, I've absolutely felt that way, having seen this play out just in my own research. It just doesn't seem to do any good. It just becomes a club for like one side to beat the other side with. Uh-huh. Um, and I, yeah, I, I started feeling like publicizing this stuff was doing more harm than good. And I, I basically stopped for that reason. I was like, this is not informative. This is just chum, you know, like it's just like throwing blood and guts in the shark infested waters and watching them I bite see. each other. Okay. So it just like entrenches both sides further, you think? Yeah. I I mean that was that was at least what I what I saw or the the reactions that I observed. Like if it's so I think it's important that where I saw this was for stuff where people had these strong ideological or moral beliefs to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh so stuff about like uh, dispositional differences between conservatives and liberals. Conservatives mm-hmm. are more easily disgusted. And then, of course, all the liberals were like, ah, this just shows conservatives are so dumb and just going with this, like, gut-level disgust feeling, and they don't think about anything. What a bunch of dumb idiots. You know, mm-hmm. so it's the fact that people had kind of, like, they were already on teams there that made it, mm-hmm. I think, useless, really, or or worse than useless to go publicizing these kinds of findings. If that's not the case, if people don't have like a strong prior, then, well, you know, maybe you do more good by by telling them about research. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's something that like, seems so challenging as like a science journalist or something like that. Um, Because it, it seems like you could report the results of a study that ostensibly weighs on a really important issue and then end up basically with people just believing more firmly what they believed from the start. Like either, as you say, either taking the results of the study at face value and saying this is more evidence or, you know, poking holes in the study and saying like all the research that shows this is shoddy and things like that. Um, Which is kind of like a disturbing conclusion because... Yeah, I guess it it sort of suggests that, um, yeah, that if you wanted to like sway someone to a different perspective, then um, data wouldn't be the way to do that. But then that's, um, then I don't know what territory you get into. Like now you're just trying to hypnotize people or something. (laughs) That's right. This is, this has become the pro hypnosis podcast. Um, (laughs) There was, uh, there's a recent paper by uh, Kirk Gray, although he wasn't first author on it. I'm feeling bad now because the first author was probably a student. I'm forgetting who it was. Uh, But the idea that uh, trying to hit people who disagree with you about like a political question with facts doesn't work. um, And that's much better to talk about your personal experience. Um, Mm. And uh, yeah, we'll look that paper up and put it in the show notes. Apologies to the grad student first author who I'm overlooking. I hate it when people do that and are doing it. But then, yeah, right. So I I think that's 100% consistent with this. But then you could also ask like, well, is personal experience really like what we want to be holding up as like our our standard of truth? I mean, it's, it's, you know, nice to know that's more convincing to people, but that also seems to be a way that you can really... um, I don't know, come up with some like biased or bad conclusions. Right. Yeah. And then like, I guess presumably our goal is not actually just to convince people of things. Um, but I guess maybe that comes full circle to, um, to the fact that scientists also engage in motivated reasoning. 
Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. So basically, I was trying to get you to be less of a hater, and and look where we are. It's impossible. <laughs> um, well, just sort of like um, extending that. Uh, one of my responses was also something similar. So I, I wrote like confirmation bias or bias dissimulation or something like that. And, and so in this case, like I'm, yeah, I'm talking about specifically the tendency for people to seek out information that confirms what they previously believed or, you know, evaluate information in a way that, um, that either like that preferentially supports what they previously believed. Um, and so that, like this, this came to my mind as something that is, I guess like, a pretty, a pretty strong influence on people's behavior and potentially can account for some serious problems that we face in society. Um, but I also am sort of on the fence about how effective it is to tell people about this phenomenon. Um, so I think there's like some research that suggests that trying to teach people about confirmation bias and bias dissimulation does pretty little to reduce it, which is sort of consistent with what you were saying, where we might sort of like get that this happens. And maybe we like, maybe we would explicitly say like, surely, yes, it happens to me, but we very rarely think that it's happening to us in the moment. And, you know, you don't really have like, you never have a feeling that you're being biased or something like that. And so it seems really hard to transfer that knowledge that this happens and happens to you to in a way that like, influences your own behavior. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's exactly right. It's so hard to catch yourself doing it that if you're, if the take home is you ought to stop doing this, then I think that's impossible. You might give people some rules for exposing themselves to alternatives or something like that, or maybe role-playing a skeptic, uh, pretending you're the devil's advocate. You know, I, I've heard this proposed in group decision making that you actually appoint somebody to be the devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like a I feel that's a little bit different because it's kind of a structural change or you're telling people, well, you know, follow this procedure and it might help versus just, well, don't do this thing that you can't even tell when you're doing it. Yeah. And maybe one of the reasons that it's hard to catch yourself doing it is that I don't think you can really refer to an individual action as um, evidence of bias, right? So, like, let's say I'm trying to, like, learn more about Ukraine and I, like, you know, read the first article that I see in the New York Times, right? Like, that in itself, it's hard to demonstrate that there's a, a bias there. Um, but if you look at my behavior over a long period of time, then you might see that, like, every news source that I access um, happens to be sort of like left-leaning or they're all American or whatever, right? They they all show sort of a pattern. Um, and I think we, this is going to be related, I think, to one of my other points, but I think we're sort of bad at picking up on those patterns in ourselves, or they're not always very obvious. Um, but it does sort of explain why with an individual action, we don't have this feeling of, oh, I'm being biased right now because the action in itself isn't really biased. It has to sort of emerge over a collection of actions. Yeah. So this um, touches on this thing that I've been kind of thinking about that became really salient during uh, COVID, where it seemed to me that it was possible that 
being correct about a big question like whether COVID vaccines are safe and effective and actually being informed about facts about that question might be negatively correlated. Oh, that's really interesting. So I I started thinking about this when uh, I, I subscribed to a newsletter from this guy, Matt Iglesias, who was on Joe Rogan's podcast promoting a book a while ago, like six months ago, uh, maybe more than that. And he talked about being on the uh, on his podcast and not expecting that Rogan was into, you know, vaccine skepticism or anything. Mm-hmm. And then Rogan bringing up like a bunch of stuff that he, Iglesias, didn't have any way to counter. Because mm-hmm. like Joe Rogan had gotten really interested in this, had gotten read a bunch of stuff, knew mm-hmm. a bunch of facts. And it's not even like those individual facts necessarily are false. It's mm-hmm. just that I mean, I think, because I'm not an expert either, I just trust the CDC or whoever to say, you know, I, I might have looked at a graph on Twitter that's that shows hospitalizations among uh, people who have been vaccinated versus not, right? But that's like the yeah. level of it, 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 this incredibly shallow knowledge where it's basically like trust the experts. And the yeah. person who thinks vaccines actually are harmful and, I don't know, um, give you myocarditis and don't pre- prevent COVID has done a ton of reading and can throw out a mm-hmm. ton of facts. It is actually mm-hmm. like if you give them a test, they might be better informed as long as that test is neutral, right? Like neutrally asking about, you know, aspects of how the clinical trials were done, for example. I could tell you none of that. The vaccine skeptic could probably tell you a lot. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I talked a lot about conspiracy theories and yeah, vaccines came up a lot in a, a class that I taught last semester. And one thing that sort of like surfaced in our exploration of different conspiracy theory beliefs was this idea of like this refrain of do your own research. Um, and I think that's like a, a like common mentality is people who, you know, are really like deep into a conspiracy theory or something like that will say like, I was like you once, but then I did my own research. And then like, I arrived at this other conclusion after learning a bunch of new pieces of information. Um, and that seems like a good process, right? Um, and it only becomes a misleading process if all of those pieces of information are, uh, yeah, like biased in a certain direction and, um, leading you away from the truth. Yeah, and you don't want to give the advice that people should just blindly trust authorities, right? Which is sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I actually don't know what to what to say about this, really, as far as like prescriptive advice. But it seems to me that for a lot of things that I were pretty convinced that one side is right. You know, vaccines work. Global warming is happening. Um, Russia invading Ukraine is bad and unprovoked. And they should get out. Like, I just kind of take people's word for that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I've read a little bit, but mostly my heuristic is, well, experts mostly seem to say this, and I'm going to go with what they say. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I think, um, I don't know this research well, but I think um, Gert Gigerenzer has some work that's basically claims that in some domains, the heuristics lead us closer to accurate answers than really like crunching the numbers or trying to think about the facts. Um, But the problem is like how to know when you should rely on heuristics, like trust the experts versus when you should do your own research. And um, I I don't think it's easy to make that distinction. Yeah. And certainly 
when I have gotten interested in a topic and I have done my own research, then I do feel better informed. And I'm like, I feel entitled to tell people who just have the trust the conventional wisdom heuristic. No, no, you know, I've spent a lot of time reading about this. I'm well informed. I can tell you different. It's like, maybe I should be especially distrustful, like in those cases where I've been motivated enough to read up and like do my Mm -hmm. own research. Yeah, right. Like all of these people who um, are interacting with people like Yoel and they're like, I fucking crushed that guy in this argument. Like, this is very validating. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Um, boy. All right. We're, we're in bleak territory again. Tell, tell us another thing that you believe in, Yoel. Uh, no, I, I will. I, I will do that. Um, so the second concept, uh, naive realism. And uh, I think this... Uh, Man, I don't know if lay people appreciate this or not. I, they must in I'm so far from like knowing what lay people think. They must in some way. So like naive realism is just the idea that we see the world as it is. We have that belief. Um, but of course we don't, right? So our perception of reality is constructed um, out of uh, our expectations, out of what's salient to us in the situation, out of like transitory factors, like what mood we happen to be in. So... If uh, somebody speaks to us in a tone of voice that we interpret as angry, we feel that the anger is inherent in them. Like, why are you talking to me in this angry way? But of course, the inference that they're angry is an interpretation that we are bringing into the situation. And that interpretation could be right or it could not be right. And it, it, I guess, like the motivated reasoning stuff we've been talking about, it's really hard to see that because it just feels like it's out there and you're actively, accurately perceiving it, not you are constructing a perception out of these ambiguous stimuli. Just like you know, our visual experience of the world is a construction of things that our visual system sometimes gets gets wrong, right? It doesn't look that way to us. It looks like a fact of the world, not a guess that our visual cortex is making about what's out there, like about what the photons hitting our uh, retinas actually mean. Yeah, I, I love teaching this kind of thing in um, intro psych. So uh, one of my former students is now teaching sensation and perception. And I'm like, oh, cool. I love sensation and perception. And he's like, it's terrible. It's super boring. Um, <laughs> but in intro psych, you can only focus on basically like visual illusions um, and how the ear works, which I also think is really fascinating, but I won't go into that. But yeah, there's all these like cool visual illusions that you can show people that demonstrate that, you know, you can have this like very, very strong sense that the way that you see things is accurate. Um, but in fact, it's inaccurate or you're filling in information. Like one of my favorite ones is these blind spot illusions where, um, you know, we fill in part of our visual field with our best guess because, um, there's like part of our retina that is taken up by the optic nerve. And so there's no cells there. Um, but we don't perceive like a hole in our vision. Um, and that's because I guess our, our visual cortex is saying like, okay, well, you know, if that, if that's a bunch of pink wall, then probably that little gap is like a pink wall too. And that's completely bonkers. Like that's crazy. Um, so I feel like learning that is, is like a really powerful demonstration of the way that all of our perception is constructed. But again, this is something that's hard to apply, right? Yeah. So, so here I'm a little more optimistic that it's not easy, but I do think you can train yourself to 
realize, at least after the fact, that your mm-hmm. perceptions can be inaccurate. And I think close relationships are great for that because especially, especially when there's conflicts, because <laughs> it's literally like, why are you so mad? I'm not mad, but you talked in a way, you looked at me in a way that made it very obvious you were mad. What are you talking about? You know? So uh, I, I feel like that's where it really comes out. Yeah, definitely. I had an experience. I was trying to think of um, experiences where naive realism was salient to me recently. And I had an experience where two people who know me very well were like started to commiserate about how I have a terrible memory for like small facts. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I, I remember everything. <laughs> yeah, right. All the stuff that I remember, I remember. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Um, boy, yeah, I'm, we should talk about that again in five years because at a certain point, I feel like it becomes obvious even to you that you have a bad memory. At first you can deny it. And then you're like, oh <laughs> shit, like, wait, there was a whole conversation here that I just completely forgot. <laughs> Okay, so that's naive realism. Uh, Alexa, what's your what's your second one? What's my second one? Um, so my second one is uh, that we underestimate social influence. So I, I thought about putting like just social influence, and by that I mean sort of that we are um, influenced by the actions of other people, both like when people ask us to do things, but also just through conformity. So you know, following what other people are doing. Um, But I think the really sort of um, disturbing or uh, maybe surprising aspect of social influence is that we tend to underestimate how powerful it is. Um, So like some of the classic studies on social influence, one is the Milgram study, um, which is a study of obedience specifically. um, And this is a study where Uh, participants come into the lab and they're basically instructed by an experimenter to shock someone who they think is a real person, but is actually a Confederate. Um, And the takeaway is that, you know, the majority of people, usually it's like somewhere between, you know, 60 and 75% um, will uh, shock this person uh, beyond a point where they think that the person has stopped responding, you know, to a point on a machine that says like XXX severe shock um, and I think the thing that's so um, surprising about these results is that if you ask people, what would you do in this situation? Almost everyone says, like, of, of course, I wouldn't continue to shock someone if I thought I was hurting them, especially when there's like no reason why I can't just leave the experiment. Um, and so people's intuition about how they would act in that situation is really different than how people seem to act. Um, and that I think is something that is very useful to know about ourselves. Um, so if you can really internalize that and and recognize like, okay, there's, if, if I were in a different situation, I might be acting in a totally different way. And my guesses about how I would be acting, um, are probably pretty off that I think paves the way to perhaps understanding other people better, but, and also perhaps having more compassion for other people. Um, and then, I mean, that's, that's specifically looking at obedience, but we also have, uh, studies like that, the Ash conformity studies where people sort of like say obvious false things about the lengths of lines because other people are saying them. Um, and this has always been sort of like interesting to me because, it seems like some of our other experiments that are common in social psychology rely on this principle. Um, so like a common 
class of experiments on cognitive dissonance um, will have people engage in a behavior that's contrary to their attitudes. And then, you know, the, the cognitive dissonance part of the experiment is that people then try to resolve that dissonance by changing their attitude usually. Um, but the way that people often get people to engage in counter attitudinal behavior, right, is basically by asking them to do it. Um, and the, uh, uh, presumably the reason that that works is that people follow the advice, um, but they don't think that they were so influenced by the person asking them that they put all the blame on that person for their actions. And so instead they put some of the blame on themselves and they infer, okay, I must actually believe what I'm doing. So often it's like writing an essay or something like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's really useful to recognize that, um, yeah, we're all really easily peer pressured essentially. Yeah. So I, I guess to go back into uh hair mode, cognitive dissonance. I mean, I really want that to be true. I read those papers and it's like 10 people per condition. I, I would love to see some of those classics replicated. There, that's going to happen. I'm excited to see what happens. Oh, th- are you involved in that? No. Okay. Okay. But it is going on. Uh-huh. I, I want those things to be true. Um, but well, I guess we'll we'll see how the replications go. But I I think your point is totally right on um, that the way that these uh, f- the free choice paradigm works is that you kind of trick people into feeling like they chose something freely, but because it's so awkward to say no, nobody ever says no, right? So you mm-hmm. request that they do this, and they at least by hypothesis feel like they've actually chosen it. But in fact, you know, if you look at the actual, you know, percentage of people or turn your down, it's zero. And what I find crazy about this, and I, I totally think that is, that does happen, that people just agree to do stuff because it's so awkward to say no. I mean, there's just a ton of studies that show that, right? There's there's a great one that I'm going to try and dig up where um, it, it's meant to be an analogy to like police looking through your phone, but they basically just ask undergraduates, Hey, will you unlock your phone and give it to me so I can look through it? And almost all of them say yes, because mm-hmm. it's like very awkward to refuse. Um, mm-hmm. Why is it that we don't have a better intuition that this will happen? Like, it seems like people are shocked by this and yet it's so ubiquitous. Like, why don't we know? Yeah, that's a great question. And I agree that like it, It seems like we, like, a lot of this can be chalked up to not wanting to create awkwardness. And I think one of the reasons that that's not intuitive is because it seems so dumb. Like, what a dumb thing to be influencing our behaviors. Like, not, not like ending an experiment where you think you might be hurting someone because it would be awkward to tell the experimenter, like, I don't want to keep doing this. And, you know, in the, in the Milgram studies, you have to do that repeatedly, um, and people just aren't willing to do that. And there's lots of demonstrations of this. Like, I can't remember the context in which I heard about this, but it was um, a situation where they were um, waiting for participants to interrupt someone or something. Um, and they were like assessing the time that it took. And that just never happened in many of the cases, right? Like, there's just, we just seem to have such an aversion to like breaking these social rules. Um, and it seems like something where if you asked people ahead of time, what's the right thing to do, they would clearly say, like, obviously I should 
break the social norm in this case. Um, so I guess that's why it's not intuitive, but, um, yeah, it doesn't seem to make it easier for people to break the social norm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with Milgram in particular, I, th- I think there have been critiques about the extent to which people like actually bought the paradigm and, you know, maybe they, um, just thought they were sort of playing along. I, I actually, I haven't looked at it closely enough to know how convincing that is, but you know, you see real world evidence of people who do crazy stuff just because they're told to. So there was a case where I think this was just some crazy person messing with people, um, called some people at like, I want to say it was like a fast food place and told them to do like just absolutely crazy stuff. It was like, I'm the branch manager. I want you to take this woman to like tie her to a chair. And they, they, they did it <laughs> they, because it's hard to say no to people. Um, and I think if you introspect, um, there are times in your own life where you absolutely think, hey, I need to do this, but it's socially awkward. And so you don't, you, you keep making excuses for why it's not the right time and maybe I'll do it later. And, oh, it's, you know, we don't, we really don't have to like have that unpleasant interaction now. Um, I was the co-organizer of a, of a pre-conference at SPSP and we had a speaker who just, I think due to a miscommunication went way over time like 10 minutes over or something. And it was just too awkward to interrupt him. And every minute I was like, okay, I'll let him go one more minute and then I'll step in. Mm-hmm. Okay, one more minute and then I'll step in. And like, I just never got there because it was too mm-hmm. awkward to like, literally, I mean, it's on Zoom, right? So I'd have to yell over him to be like, you need to stop, you're over time. You know, it was, it was just too tough and I couldn't do it. So here's where I feel like cognitive dissonance has to be right in some way. Like, I feel the reason that it's not intuitively obvious to us that this is taking place is that afterwards we start thinking of it differently and we start rationalizing that behavior mm-hmm. and we start thinking of it as, well, no, you know, there was a very, you know, reasonable motivation for going along with a less socially awkward thing, for not interrupting the person, for giving them what they wanted. And it doesn't feel to us like it like it would a priori as, no, that's ridiculous and nobody would do that. Instead, it starts to seem reasonable. And I think Mm -hmm. that is because it feels so threatening to think that it's incredibly easy to talk us into doing things that we don't want to do just by somebody kind of politely requesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like such an embarrassing thing to fully acknowledge um, that I think most of us are in denial about it. And like you say, then the other um, the other stories creep in. Oh, that was something that I was going to say when you were talking about naive realism, um, was I was thinking that, um, do you know who Brené Brown is? Uh, I just recently learned who she is. Um, so I would say that Brené Brown is like, um, uh, she's, I don't think she's a psychologist, um, but she's sort of like a self-help guru. Um, and one of the messages that she um that she communicates that i hear from people that i know all the time um is the idea that we need to question the stories we tell ourselves um and so like she i guess that 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 seems like a question naive realism message um but i hear this used in a therapy context often where where people are like yeah you know the story that i was telling myself was that yoel was mad but in reality you may have just been playing Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
In reality, I was just thinking really hard about how I was going to kill this dude later. <laughs> Zelda, and maybe I made an angry face. It's not about you. Yeah, I think that comes from CBT as well. The idea that you, you know, yeah, have right. these kind of, right, these set narratives and you ought to question or interrupt them. Um, Alexa, what what is your current beer situation? Can I ask? Um, I could I could take a break. Could you? All right. Yes. Let's take a break. Let's, and then we'll come back and we'll do the last two. Welcome back. Uh, this week, we have a sponsor that uh, we'd like to tell you guys about. Uh, so our sponsor this week is Finding Five. Uh, they're at www.findingfive.com. And uh, they are uh, they call themselves a tech nonprofit. So they're a nonprofit organization. Basically, they're a web platform where you can create and run line, uh, uh, online uh, research studies uh, based on their servers. So Alexa, I see your face. Which, pro- which is saying something to me like, why not just use Qualtrics? Isn't that what your face is saying? <laughs> I am thinking, why not just use Qualtrics? But I also have had the experience of um, occasionally uh, not being able to do everything that I want to do with Qualtrics. Um, so I think this is especially important when you're interested in, in really like precise um, reaction times and things like that. So more along the lines of, I guess, what we would typically do in cognitive studies or maybe like social cognition studies um, where I guess Qualtrics is not well equipped to handle those kinds of designs. Yeah, exactly right. So I've actually run an IT from within Qualtrics. It was like a terrible hacky experience that involved like copy pasting in a bunch of JavaScript. It's just like not Qualtrics is like not well set up for scenarios where you want to present people with like, let's say, hundreds of different stimuli across trials, and you want to randomize different aspects of that. Uh, So that's what uh, Finding Five really specializes in. So they have something called a study grammar, which is basically kind of a scripting language, like an easy to use scripting language that they've created that allows you to put together studies that loop over many trials and show people different stuff and we've both had the opportunity to kind of play around with the website right yeah so i mean um i'm pretty opposed to having to learn any new um programming languages um but i played around with this and i was like surprised by the amount of um scaffolding that's in the program that allows you to pick it up fairly easily i would say um i haven't really done programming of those kinds of studies since I was in grad school. So I think that, you know, the fact that it seemed pretty intuitive to me is promising for all the people out there who are smarter than me and more experienced with this kind of thing. You mean your grad students? (laughs) Yes, I do. 
Exactly. Yeah, so I messed around with it a little bit too. Uh, I made a little demo study. It's easy to get started. Uh, they really do try to make it user-friendly and to not require you know, extensive programming experience or anything like that. Uh, if you're interested in this at all, so if you're running any sort of studies where uh, you do anything like this, I think it's totally worth checking them out because you can make an account there and uh, create a study for free. So they don't charge you at all to mess around with their interface, to uh, use their study grammar to build a study, um, and uh, to really like do anything that you want. Uh, where they start charging you is when you start collecting data. Uh, so that's uh, on a per-participant basis. I think those rates are really reasonable. Uh, and because they're a nonprofit, they're really just trying to keep the lights on rather than trying to make money. And uh, they've given us uh, a special deal for our listeners that gets you a complimentary one-month pro subscription, which comes with some premium features and also 100 free participants. Uh, so basically, if you you know find it useful, you make a study, uh, you're like, I actually want to run this, uh, then you can use our special promo code in order to get a pro subscription and actually run it uh, for free. Uh, so that promo code, it's different for um, US versus... Uh, EU European user European Union users. So for US users, the promo code is FF-US-2P4B. For European users, it's FF-EU-2P4B. Uh, I'm not expecting you guys to remember this. We'll put this in the show notes, which means it'll show up on the website and everything with links. Uh, again, their website is uh, www.finding5.com. Going and making an account and just like playing around with it is absolutely free and I think well worth your time if you'd run anything like this. So, you know, obviously if you're a cognitive researcher, it's a no-brainer, but also like if you do any social cognition type stuff, um, there are these occasions where you're like, yeah, I'd like to show people like hundreds of pictures um, and get some sort of response measure. Um, and conventional survey software is just like not good in that application. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So uh, if you're interested, uh, you'll find more details in the show notes. Thank you so much for to Finding Five for sponsoring our show. We really appreciate it. And uh, before we get back to the drinks, uh, I'll just say if you are enjoying the show, please rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. Helps other people discover the show. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, our show email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, we can also be reached on Twitter at fourbeerspod, where you can at mention or DM us. And our website is fourbeers.com. You can drop us a line there as well, uh, as well as listening to any of our episodes. So that's it as far as promo, unless Alexa, I'm leaving something out. That's good. Amazing. What are you drinking? Um, I'm still drinking the same thing, but my beer is bigger than yours, so it's not fair. Oh, wow. Yeah, slow drinker. Well, I'm. you know what? Like, I think I jumped the gun a little bit because I'm not quite done yet, but I'm almost done. And when I finish, I'm going to switch to... Can you see ah, this? Very nice. Yeah, I picked up this bottle of Sazerac in the US. It's tough to get here. Um, it's a rye. It's one of my favorite ryes. I'm very excited to drink that. So that I'm getting off the beer train onto the rye train in just a minute. All right. Well, shall we dive back in? Yeah. So um, so we're on your number three. Is that right? 
Yeah, although I feel like we ought to do your number two first because it's so thematically consistent. And then we can we can close it out with my number three. Yeah, I feel like mine all have are all maybe different versions of the same thing to some degree. Um, so my my second one is um, that we don't have full knowledge of what influences our beliefs and preferences. So uh, I think that this idea is mostly commonly associated with Nisbet and Wilson's paper from 1977. Um, but I actually don't love the examples that are used in that paper to support this idea. So this, this paper is often cited as evidence that we should never use self-reports, right? So there's no point in asking people uh, questions about their mental states because they have no idea what's going on. I think would be like the extreme version of that interpretation. Um, and the paper itself focuses a lot on how really sort of mm, trivial seeming subtle things can influence our behavior in unexpected ways. And that's for me is not totally the takeaway from the paper. Um, but I do think that one valid point that the, this paper makes is that um, there are certain things that we have introspective awareness about, um, but there are a lot of things that we don't have introspective awareness about. So we can't just like look into our brains and see, for instance, um, I don't know, the various characteristics of movies that influence whether or not we like them. Um, we might be able to look into our brains and report how we calculated the tip we want to give um, on a bill, for instance. Um, so I think that there are certainly... Uh, domains where asking people to report on their thought processes tells us something meaningful. I also think that if you ask people, how are you feeling right now? What they tell you is probably an excellent representation of how they're feeling. Um, I guess putting aside social desirability concerns, which are real. Um, but I think we have pretty good introspective awareness about that. Um, but there are some things um, that at least I buy that we don't really have great awareness of. So um, if you ask somebody, I don't know, why are you like this in relationships? Um, I think most of us would have a pretty hard time answering that. Um, and because, you know, it's a complicated answer that surely there are many factors that build over time. And again, it sort of relies on this ability to see um, patterns. So, you know, maybe our behaviors are changing in a certain way because of certain kinds of influences, but it doesn't happen just in one instant, right? So it's not like this one thing caused us to be a certain way. Um, and I think it's hard to sort of pick up on those patterns and sometimes sort of strangely easier to see how those patterns influence other people. So that's why we sometimes have the experience of somebody else sort of like noticing something about us that we weren't even really aware of about ourselves. Um, like people <laughs> realizing that my memory is terrible, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, I think this is a powerful idea because uh, it suggests that, first of all, that sometimes other people can tell us things about ourselves that we didn't already know. Um, but it also suggests that we don't have sort of this comprehensive knowledge about ourselves and that um, perhaps we don't fully understand sort of why we do the things that we do. Um, and and yeah, I think that that sort of opens um a path to greater self-insight potentially if we if we consider that we might do things for different reasons than seem intuitive. Yeah, I, I think that's totally right. I think one interesting wrinkle on this is like, it, I feel often the expectation is that you are supposed to have an answer. So 
you seem upset. Why are you upset? And often for me, the answer is, I have no idea. Do you tell me? Do you have any theories? But like, that doesn't, I feel often people are not happy with that style of response, right? They want you to have self-insight. And I just feel like I'm being honest that I don't. That's really interesting. I think one of the things that being in social psychology has changed about my interactions with people is that instead of asking them like, yeah, why do you dislike this? Or like, why do you feel this way? I often say like, do you know why you feel this way? And I think that's a strange question for some people to answer. Right. Cause you're supposed to know. Cause you're, yeah. Sp- yeah. And I, I feel like, has it maybe impaired my ability to make up a story without noticing? Because I do feel that if I think about it, then I can, I can say something like, well, I'm not sure this is right, but if I had to give you an answer, I could speculate that it was about this. And for normal mm-hmm. people, is it that they just do this you know, all the time and they don't notice that they're doing it? Well, I do think that there's something to this, um, this idea that we should have an answer. Um, so if you've like been socialized to think that saying, yeah, I'm not really sure why I'm mad right now is like absurd, um, then I guess probably the way that you answer that question is you, you know, think about what the most plausible answer is, and then you give it as though it's fact. Um, which makes sense if you think that you can sort of just look into your own mind and then come up with the answer. Um, so if you haven't, if you haven't learned that it's possible that we could be wrong about those things, then I think it makes perfect sense to just report the most likely answer as though it's a fact. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do the same kind of thing as you, Yoel, which might also be inf- um, frustrating to other people, which is to say, like, uh, I'm I'm not totally sure. My best guess is that it might be this, but it also might be this. And I think this also like ties back to our discussion of social influence, because I think that there are, there are explanations that we like and explanations that we don't, right? So if we're like, you know, feeling really angry, Um, then it might feel better to say, I'm really angry because this injustice was done um, and it was really unfair than it is to be like, oh, I haven't eaten in four hours and I'm starving and like, I'm really pissed. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, yeah, there are, there are like narratives that we are embarrassing or silly and we would prefer to have like a legitimate reason for our, our values and preferences and attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. And with me, it's almost certainly that I haven't eaten. Like, oh, yeah, I forgot to eat. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> That's why I'm being a total dickhead. Right yeah, now. exactly. No, it's definitely not the injustice. I, I, You know, I think you're right that there's sort of a core part of all of this that's just about what mysteries we are to ourselves and that there's all of this stuff going on that we don't have good insight into that happens out of the view of the part of us that's able to give verbal explanations of thoughts and feelings and behavior, mm-hmm. and that we're at best kind of making informed guesses about based on, I don't know, observing ourselves over a lifetime of behavior. Mm-hmm. I think that's still, you know, I mean, we do get skeptical on this show. And sometimes we're almost at a point where we're like, well, the only stuff that's true is this stuff that anybody could tell you. But I think that this is a true thing that is non-obvious to people. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think the, the normal lay person would think of themselves in this way. It's such a counterintuitive way to think of yourself as being almost this like 
collection of like semi-autonomous like subsystems that are doing this stuff that you don't really know about and then you're just kind of presented with a conscious awareness of the results and you have to kind of guess like back solve for like why that would have happened that's mm -hmm. super weird and kind of like freaky to be honest so i'm going to take us down from these like lofty philosophical heights and and my last one is just incredibly almost like boringly practical i feel but at the same time super useful uh so the ending idea is bang the, <laughs> the what what did you say I said ending with a bang. <laughs> That's right. Ending ending with sort of a gentle thump. <laughs> uh, so so here's the idea. Um, it's, uh, it's just loss aversion. And the idea is that uh, equivalently sized losses feel worse than the same size gain feels good. So we're more sensitive to losses than we are to gains. So it's not that, you know, we don't like losses and we like gains, which is completely obvious. It's that there is a difference in our reaction to a equally sized magnitude of losses and gains. And that's easiest to kind of equate when we're talking about um, financial losses versus gains. And so one way to get at this is just uh, what would you need uh, to accept uh, a bet on a coin flip? So heads, you win X dollars. Tails, you lose X dollars. People do definitely don't want to take even money bets, um, which, you know, if you're, if you're not risk-seeking, makes sense. But there's also plenty of ex positive expected value bets that they won't take, right? So uh, most people, if you ask them, will you take a bet where you win 120 versus lose 100? That's not attractive to them. They would rather mm, pass on that at even odds. So the the loss aversion coefficient, which is as you can think of it, is like, well, what amount of money do you need to put against a hundred? Um, is usually around two to two and a half. So if you're like, oh, you win two hundred against your one hundred stake, well, then people start to say yes. Okay, so what's the problem with that thinking? Is if you think of a bet not in isolation, but as part of a long series of bets that you're going to make over your life, taking expected value bets is a really good idea. Because multiplied over many, many trials, you're almost certain to come out ahead. And uh -huh. because people think of these choices in isolation, and because loss aversion is a thing, uh, they make choices that are bad for them in the big picture perspective. So I'll just give you two quick examples. Um, one is buying extended warranties on things like, you know, stereos or iPods or what have you. Almost always a bad idea. Uh -huh. And the reason for that, there's, it's twofold. It's one that uh, typically stores make money on this. Um, and so they build in a healthy profit margin for themselves. Secondly, um, because they're particularly likely to sell these uh, policies to people who break things, um, they price that in, right? So you're, they're, they're figuring they're going to select the most kind of risk-prone people and sell them policies. So the policies are relative to the cost of the thing really expensive. Like you might be paying, I don't know, a hundred bucks for um, a replacement policy on a $400 item. And it just financially doesn't make any sense. Like if you add up all of the items over the course of your life, you're like, okay, let's say I have to replace X percent. Almost always, unless you're like the world's most clumsy or careless person, you come out ahead saying, all right, I will eat that one replacement and I will never buy the extended warranty and I will come out ahead. For most mm -hmm. people, that's the right decision. But 
because it hurts when you think of this one replacement that you might have to make, that warranty starts to seem attractive. It starts to seem more attractive than it ought to. And I think it's a combination of um, being sensitive to that potential loss and thinking of this as one decision in isolation. You're like, well, you know, it, it would suck enough to have to replace this for 400 bucks that it doesn't seem that bad to buy this policy for 75 or whatever. Right. Okay, so that's example one. Example two is um, investments. So there's sort of a ongoing puzzling phenomenon, which is that people, when they're saving for retirement, uh, like bonds more than they ought to. So bonds are a, a safe investment on which you're never going to Typically, I mean, if they're, let's say, U.S. government bonds, you're very unlikely to lose the money you put in, but also your returns are quite a bit lower than stocks. Uh, so people like bonds, but over the long run, they're not a great investment because you're giving up a lot of potential gain. So stocks go up over time, but they have a lot of up and down to them. They have a lot of volatility. So if your time horizon is like 30 years, you should largely be buying the stocks, right? They will go up and down, but they, uh, over time, will trend upwards, and they'll trend upwards more so than bonds will, which are safer. You know, you're almost certainly not going to have a loss, but your rate of appreciation is a lot lower. So one reason for this kind of pattern of preferences is that when people check, hey, how are my retirement accounts doing with stocks, which bounce around a lot, they might be down on a given day. They might be like, oh, wow, I lost, I don't know, like $3,000 today. And they don't like that, even though the loss isn't real, right? It's mm -hmm. just uh, on paper, you know, unless you have to like sell those, those stocks, you're not going to like actually realize this loss. It's unpleasant for them. And so what they like is an investment that can't go down, where you can never log in and say, oh, wow, I lost money today, right? The bonds, mm -hmm. they only ever go up. They just do it very slowly. Mm -hmm. um, and there's actually some like nice experimental evidence where you can put people in like an incentivized kind of retirement saving simulator, and you can manipulate how often they can look at the returns. And when you let people look at the returns more often, they don't like the more volatile investments that nonetheless over time are, are better buys. They go more for the safer investments and they actually make less money in this kind of simulated retirement savings environment. So I think there's, those are just two examples, but I think there's lots of cases in which people make these suboptimal decisions because they're really sensitive to losses in a way that they ought not to be. Um, and unlike some of the stuff that we've talked about, there really is like, I think, an easy solution to some of these problems, which is that you can set policies for yourself. You can say, like, I've done the math. I never buy the extended warranty. Or I'm going to buy the stocks and I'm just not going to look at my IRA for like the year because it doesn't matter right? It, it's uh -huh. just not important. Or else, if I look at it, I'm going to think, whatever. Like, if it's down, it's down. It's not important. Don't worry about it. You're not going to be catching this out until you're 65. So you can't get rid of the reaction, but I think you can make better policies for yourself that I, it'll work around the reaction, I guess. Okay. I have two questions. So you you have the the opportunity right now to be having a positive impact in my life because I'm not totally convinced. <laughs> Go on. Okay. 
My first question is, does does this depend on how like how serious a a big loss would be to a person? So I get the like over time, et cetera, you know, you are on average going to be better if you make these kinds of decisions, but couldn't it still be the best decision for somebody if like a catastrophic loss would ruin their lives? Yeah. So, so the rule is buy insurance against things that would wipe you out. So (laughs) definitely insure your house. I mean, I think you're like legally required to, right? Uh, Yeah. Okay. That was going to be my second question was like, should I not buy insurance? Like what, Yeah. what are you saying? Yeah. So, so, so I think that the, the uh, rule of thumb that most of the time will give you the right results is if you could afford to replace it without it causing you serious financial harm, don't buy the insurance. So, I mean, a house for most people is not in that category, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, For many people, a car is also not in that category, right? So, like, they can't just afford to replace a car. Um, So insurance there makes sense. But insurance against, uh, I don't know, like trip insurance, they constantly try to sell you that, Mm -hmm. right? Is it going to wipe you out to um, take a eat five or even 10 grand on some plane tickets? If not... That insurance is not worth it. Well, right? where don't are you get flying? It. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just thinking of the possible, like, you know, what's a maximum? What's a theoretical maximum that they might, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, how much, 10 grand is too much, right? Well, maybe if it's the whole trip, uh, hotel room, plane tickets, all of that, you could get there. <laughs> the most recent flight I looked up was from Tuscaloosa to Houston, so... Maybe not a fair comparison. So what was that, like a couple hundred bucks? Uh, actually, weirdly, $500, which is more than I expected. $500? Yeah, That's isn't that outrageous? Yeah. Uh, I think it's a spring break thing. Oh, spring break ruining everything. Okay. What's the second question? That uh, The second question was about insurance. So you basically answered both at the same time. Great. Um, what are your retirement savings invested in? I don't know. <laughs> Worst case scenario. Oh boy. I'm trusting the experts, right? Oh no, that's often they set terrible defaults because they 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 pick the safest possible thing, but that's not what you actually want your money to be in. Are you offering me financial advice? Right yes, now? I'm offering you free financial advice, and you know it's highly reliable, and I'm definitely qualified to give it. Uh, <laughs> do not look at what the default option is because it's often quite bad. They don't they don't choose a thing that's good for you. <laughs> okay, good, great. Well, so how do you feel about you know now that we've we've done all this? Do you do you feel like kind of more more positive? You know. Uh... I have the experience of of feeling like being in social psychology has given me some insight into into my life that I would have I wouldn't have had otherwise. But I guess if I had not been a social psychologist, maybe I would have been like a financial planner and I would be, you know, investing my stuff in the right things and stuff like that. You would so. definitely be allocating your retirement accounts correctly. <laughs> yeah well you you all do do, i yeah actually i think this was a useful exercise for me because i do sometimes get so kind of down on the specifics of a specific paper or uh you know uh, a finding or theory and it's nice to zoom out and say like i do think that we have discovered things that are interesting and true that's nice that is nice yeah Good for us. Good for Well done. High five. Team social psychology.